Good morning, everyone. It's great to be able to speak to you <clears throat> again this morning. We've finally made it, the last chapter in the second letter of Corinthians. So if you'd like to be uh, turning to that, that's what we're considering this morning. Paul planted this church in Corinth 1,970 years ago, approximately, in AD 50. He taught them the word of God. He laid the foundations for the church over an 18-month period. He then wrote the first letter about three years later, addressing some serious issues that had developed in the church. His second visit, a couple of years later, distressed him because there were people in rebellion. Some of the church had continued in sin and were personally against Paul. His next letter to us was lost, but his third letter, which is called 2 Corinthians, all a bit confusing, isn't it, was written about six years later and is described as a painful letter. He wrote this with tears and he wrote it preparing for his next visit. So we're going to read 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 19. We're going to pick up from there and then <clears throat> chapter 13. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all of you for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. <clears throat> this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray that God, to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me, for the upbuilding and not for the tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace 
will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That means affectionately and appropriately. So in COVID times, it means with a holy elbow. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Amen. So Paul is warning and appealing once again to this rebellious church, or the rebellious in the church. Some believers have still not turned from their holy, unholy living to holy living. And Paul confronts and calls those who are still rebelling and remaining in deliberate and intentional sin to repent. Sexual impurity and immorality continued in the church, as well as strife and division and jealousy. We see that at the end of chapter 12. Paul grieves and confronts those who are intentionally distorting truth and living sinful lives. He longed for all of the church to be living in the freedom that repentance and forgiveness and grace brings to us. Paul refers to an Old Testament principle here, one that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 18. He says, if your brother sins, go and tell him. If your brother does not listen to you, take uh, one or two along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen, take it to the church. Sinful behaviour in the church must be dealt with, and that applies to us today. Paul is talking tough here. He is stern and serious. Elders and leaders and fathers and mothers in the church sometimes have to use tough love and warn individuals and elders on occasions. Not frequently, I, gather, I, I uh, note that discipline, the elders do have to discipline for the sake of all the church. Paul wants the Corinthians to deal with their issues before his next visit so that he'll not have to confront them yet again. You can just feel the exasperation in his writing here. Oh, come on, guys. Sort yourselves out. Stop sinning. Stop doing it. It's great advice, isn't it? Stop sinning. Although Corinth was a very different culture from our own, these issues mentioned in chapter 12 of quarrelling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, are in the Western church, and we're no different today. On the issue of sexual purity and identity, sadly, the church in this country, and I'm talking generally, at times mirrors that of Corinth. You know, there are strong voices and spiritual forces at work in some church denominational structures that are demanding compromise in biblical sexual purity. Moving away from the clear teaching of the Bible on lifestyles for single people, however young or old they are, and for marriages between one man and one woman for life. The spirit of the age is affecting churches in the West Issues that raged in Corinth, though the idols of money, sex and power, affect our churches too in this age. All of us at times need to hear truth and sometimes need tough 
pastoral love to keep us on track. Because when our behavior is contrary to the word of God, there are always consequences, either short-term or long-term. Our sin affects our lives. Our sin affects the lives of other people. Our sin affects the life of the church. And ultimately, all sin is against God. Part of the role of elders in churches is to challenge and pastorally discipline those who are living sinful lives, all with the aim of restoring those who are repentant and want to live a holy, godly life in the power of the Spirit. We're not to mess around with these things. Sin needs to be repented of, and it will be exposed sooner or later, because truth always comes out. Better for all of us to deal with our issues now, to receive forgiveness and live in the freedom of grace. Amen? Sadly, sometimes what happens when people are challenged in love and in a godly pastoral way, they ignore what is said to them. Sometimes they decide to clear off and go somewhere else where they may not be challenged. I've seen it happen many times and it's sad. In Galatians 6, it says, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You know, we're to act in love, not to ignore, but to seek to restore. Jesus, you see, at his return, is coming back for a clean and holy bride without spot, no acne, no warts, no wrinkles. No crow's feet, no makeup. I better stop there, hadn't I? He's coming back for a beautiful bride, a holy people whom he gave his life for. So Paul warns, he's really serious, isn't he? You get that tone when you read um, these, this, the end of this letter. Um, he's really concerned for the Corinthian church. He says, come on, get your act together. Let's, let's get this stuff done. But he uses a very interesting word in his prayer. And I don't know if you noticed it. It's in verse 9. Paul prays for your restoration, he says. Your restoration is what we pray for. If you look at the Corinthian letters as a whole, one theme that runs throughout is restoration. Paul spoke of divisions and immorality, honour in marriage, honouring the gift of singleness, worship communion, brotherly love, spiritual gifts, generous giving, all with the aim of these being restored properly in the church. How do you know if you or I need restoring? How do we know? Verse 5 tells us, it says, examine yourselves. Look into your hearts to see what is there. If it is not of faith giving glory to Jesus, then deal with it. Why? Because Christ is in you. Examine your hearts to see if there's any darkness, any shadow, any evil, any compromise that is not compatible with Christ dwelling in you. Ask yourself, should I be living like this? If it is not a faith, if it doesn't bring glory to Jesus, if it's not bringing peace and joy, then it's a hindrance 
and needs to go. Restoration needs to happen. So restoration begins with repentance, a change of mind, a change of thinking, a change of behavior, a change of direction. Repentance, you see, is so, so powerful because it releases us from the past, from ungodly behavior, from ungodly thinking, so that we can be restored in Christ. Paul says, your restoration is what we pray for. The word restoration suggests the idea of restoring that which is broken, putting things in order to mend, to straighten out, a restoring of what is lost. Some of the translations use the word perfection, but the ESV translates the Greek word there as restoration, and there's a very subtle difference between restoration and perfection. I'll give you an example uh, in a minute. But a furniture restorer will repair a broken leg or a broken part of a piece of furniture. I don't know if you watch the uh, program Repair Shop. It's uh, one of my favorite programs. It's filmed here in Sussex. Um, it's, uh, it's filmed from the Wealdon Downland Museum near Chichester. And people bring family heirlooms and things that are broken and damaged and they're professionally restored. So broken chairs, musical instruments, cuddly toys, jewellery, leather items, metal items, watches, anything. They bring and they find some expert to repair it. One of my favourites is Dom. I don't know if you, if you watch it, you might know Dom. He's a little bit camera shy, but he gets so excited about repairing stuff and he takes his hammer to it and uh, um, he welds stuff and I, I think Dom's great. Anyway, so a restorer repairs a broken leg on a table, for example, but a French polisher will polish that table to make it perfect. French polishing, not that I've ever done it, um, but French polishing puts the polish on and the polisher just polishes away for hours and hours and another layer of polish on and polishes away. And the beautiful grain in the, uh, the uh, furniture comes out. It's not Ikea, I can assure you. It's, it's something of beauty. So there's a slight difference there, a very subtle difference between restoration and perfection. We're being perfected in Christ, but we also need to be restored. So the best way to understand restoration is a repairing or a realigning what is broken. At the root of this word, why I'm stressing this is because it's so important, and I've actually got excited about it. At the root of this word is a relocation or setting of dislocated bones. You can see why that excites me with my, my, my background. If you dislocate a bone, it is extremely painful. Has anyone dislocated a bone? Yes, a few of you. It's very, very painful. The relocation process is somewhat painful too. But what a relief when the joint is back in place, when it's aligned and can function properly again. Um, when I worked in London, <clears throat> Uh, there's a saying that you, you, a bus doesn't come along and then three comes along at once. And one morning I was working in the department and believe it or not, I hadn't seen a dislocated finger for a long time and three came in in one morning. 
gosh, it was a bumper morning. People were in pain, but I got so excited about being able to help them because once the joint is back in, people want to hug you because it just feels so good because it's all in place again and it functions again. Restoration then is about a relocating, a a setting in place that which is out of place or disjointed, that which is out of alignment. Restoration has nothing to do with self-improvement. I'm going to try harder and sort myself out because we are weak. Paul reminds us about that. No, it is a putting back in place, a clicking back into place, if you like, that which is out of place, a straightening of that which needs to be relocated. So Paul here prays for their restoration, a realigning to holy living through the power of the Spirit. Are you dislocated in any way? Let's look at some other verses that use this very same word. In Mark, 1 chapter, uh, in Mark chapter 1, verse 19, James and John were in their boat mending their nets. It's the same word. They were restoring their nets. In 1 Peter 5, verse 10, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore you confirm, strengthen, and establish you. See, it's not our own efforts. He restores us. Paul is wanting to see a pure, holy church restored in its love and devotion to Jesus. We see this theme of restoration throughout the other scriptures as well. The children of Israel were delivered from slavery Uh, to enter the promised land. And after a lot of grumbling and wandering around, eventually they were restored to the land. After the Babylonian exile, the Jewish people were released to return to the land. And Nehemiah physically rebuilt, he restored the city walls. Paul repeats this theme of restoration in verse 11. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration. Aiming for restoration, you see, is is not passive, but it's active. We aim for it, we go for it, we pursue it, we have our part to play for it, we position ourselves for it. Though we are weak, we make the decision, the choice to be restored, to ask God to restore us. And God will answer your prayers for restoration because it's within his will for you. Paul absolutely believed restoration was possible. I remind you of what he said in 1 Corinthians 6, of those who were um, into money, sex and power. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. King David after he had committed adultery and murder, after he had lied and sinned against God, he'd sinned against Bathsheba, against her husband, he repented and cried out to God for a clean heart. And in Psalm 51, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He's really saying, realign me, God. Click me back into place. Joel 2 verse 25 says, I will restore to you 
For years the swarming locusts have eaten. I love that promise. Swarming locusts devour everything. You know, gardeners in this country moan about slugs nibbling at their lettuce and other vegetables. But if you've ever seen pictures of locusts swarming, they eat absolutely everything in their path. It's all gone. God says he will restore even what the swarming locusts have eaten. So, how does restoration take place? I want to look at, just to look at it through um, verse 14, through that prayer at the end of the letter. The first thing is through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the grace of Jesus enables us to be restored, mended, relocated, we can be fully alive in and through God's, through Christ's saving grace. Paul is wanting, even desperate, that the Corinthians make the right choice. He longs for them to be restored, to find grace, rather than to have to be disciplined yet again. Paul is imploring them to act truthfully, to be true to the gospel, to live rightly for the glory of God. In verse 4, we see Christ's example. For Jesus was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. You know, when we die to ourselves, we die to sin and dislocation in our weakness. We rise again and can live strong in the power of God. Do you recognize in you a need for any restoration this morning? This is what we're going to witness later. Eve and Neo in the baptistry, as they're baptised, they're demonstrating that they have died to themselves. They have died to the past. They have been restored in their relationship to Father God and will be raised up and enabled to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. We have a visual demonstration of that this morning. But I want us to look at a very beautiful example of Jesus restoring a friend of his, one who deserted and denied him. Jesus had breakfast on the beach. This was after his resurrection with Peter and the other disciples. You read about it in John 21. Peter was already a disciple. He'd already decided to follow Jesus. He'd left his profession as a fisherman to follow Jesus And yet he failed dreadfully. Peter had wept tears of remorse. His denial of Jesus, he had repented with tears. He had seen Jesus, the the Son of God, his Lord, die upon the cross. Three days later, he'd seen the empty tomb. He'd seen the body of Jesus physically raised. And Peter himself was filled with the Spirit when Jesus breathed on his disciples and yet Peter was carrying guilt and shame he was still dislocated he was not able to function and so he goes back to what he knew he goes back to fishing and that night they jumped into a boat the disciples and went fishing and Jesus was on the beach the next morning asked how did the fishing go guys they didn't have any fish He told them to throw their nets over the other side and the disciples landed a huge catch of fish and 
Jesus lit a barbecue, invited them for breakfast. The important thing is, though, Jesus looked into the eyes of Peter and he asked the question, Peter, do you love me? Jesus didn't say to him, you're a dirty, rotten sinner. You've let me down again, haven't you? You denied me. You're a worm, Peter. I'm never going to trust you again, Peter. No. Jesus said, do you love me? Three times he asked that question. And Peter's response was, you know I love you, Jesus. And Jesus gently restored him. Restoration dealt with Peter's shame and guilt. He was free, no longer dislocated, no longer under condemnation. He was restored and recommissioned. The grace of Jesus, all that he has won for us upon the cross, his one-time sacrifice for sin restores us. As you look into the eyes of Jesus, hear his voice, and do not fear because he wants to restore you. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth. Psalm 23, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. He relocates me so I can live a holy life. So it's the grace of the Lord Jesus and then it's the love of the Father. Live in the revelation that Father God loves you. You know the cross is the complete revelation of the love and kindness of Father God for us. Father God was willing for his one and only son to die on the cross to remove all of our sin, all of our darkness, all of the shadows and pain in our life, all that is dislocated and unaligned to bring us into sonship, fellowship with Father God. The love of God enables us to put away jealousy, anger, all orphan-hearted behaviour, comparison, competition, strife, jealousy, the whole lot. The love of God melts that from us. And thirdly, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. There is a communal fellowship with the Holy Spirit as we gather uh, in church as the people of God, but there's also a personal, individual fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And you know, it blows my mind to think that I can have fellowship with a holy God, with the Holy Spirit. Fellowship and intimacy with the Spirit enables us in our weakness to live holy lives in a corrupt and dark culture, to be holy people in Sin City. We are weak, but he is so, so strong. Zechariah 4 verse 6 says, Not by might, nor by power, nor by anything that I can do, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you this morning that needs to be restored in your life right now? It could be things that have been there for years, like the Corinthian church, left undealt with maybe. Maybe you've been running away from God, dislocated from him, walking in the opposite direction. You know, he loves you. He really does. Jesus died on the cross for you. 
and wants to come and fill your heart today. He wants you to be realigned to him, maybe for the first time. But will you choose that today? He has chosen it for you. Maybe the Holy Spirit has shown you an area that the locust has devoured, your intimacy with the Father, time sitting at his feet. Maybe one of the spiritual disciplines of meditation or prayer, fasting or soaking in God's presence. Maybe some of these things have been devoured and lost in your life. Maybe it's a relationship within the church or outside the church. Maybe it's a gift of the Spirit that you've neglected. Christ poured out his life for us so that we can be restored in our relationship with God. Restored so that we can love, build and serve and celebrate him. Let's stand together and pray. <clears throat> just have a moment of quiet and allow the Holy Spirit just to point out anything in your heart that needs restoring. It may be an intentional sin. If you've repented of that, then you can look into the eyes of Jesus, just as Peter did. And be restored. He wants to restore our, our mourning to dancing, our sorrow to joy. Our bitterness to sweetness. He wants to remove fear, replace it with joy and peace. He's the restorer of our soul. Thank you, Father, that your love never fails. Your, your love continues to come to us. And we thank you that in your love you want to restore every part of our lives so that we can live holy lives in the culture around us. Would you enable us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.